Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we're exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's guest is Dan Grunfeld. Dan is a former professional basketball player and author of the book, By the Grace of the Game. In our discussion, Dan tells the harrowing story of how his grandmother escaped the Holocaust during World War II. He shares how the resilience she demonstrated during and after the war was passed on to Dan's father and then to Dan himself. Rather than enjoying the life of privilege Dan inherited, he talks about his duty to honor his family legacy by honing his skills, body, and mind so he could be the best athlete and person he can be. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Dan, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Don, thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your career? And let's start with your days in college. Sure. So my first career was in sports. So I was a basketball player, went to college at Stanford, played on some good teams there, had a nice run, was kind of a borderline NBA overseas player. I had a very serious knee injury in college where I tore my ACL at the worst time when I was, you know, second leading scorer in the conference and uh, kind of changed my trajectory a little bit, but made my career in Europe. So played eight years professionally there, retired at the age of 30. So the, you know, the body slowed down, the heart definitely, you know, was not as into it as it used to be, but you're still a young man, right? So I had a whole life in front of me. Went to business school, so went back to Stanford, got my MBA and joined a startup, and I'm now with a venture capital firm. And we are talking about resilience. You wrote a book called By the Grace of the Game, and the story in the book really starts, well, it's an interweaving of your personal story and then your family story, and a central character in it is your grandmother. And so maybe you could talk about your grandmother and her upbringing, where she was born, how she grew up, and where she is now. My grandmother's the central character of the book. There's no doubt about it. She will turn 98 years old in a few days. Unbelievable. She's based in the Bay Area. She's not only my hero, she's also a hero. You know, my grandmother's a Holocaust survivor. You know, and I say she's a hero because she risked her life to save others during the war. So she has a big survival story. She's from Transylvania on the border of Romania and Hungary. She survived the Holocaust in Budapest. She was in the Budapest ghetto. She narrowly evaded a massacre at the end of the war. She survived narrowly. She saved others. She would lose five siblings and both parents in the Holocaust. And so she's, you know, just has this extraordinary will to live. And is the most amazing person, you know, her and my grandfather's also a Holocaust survivor. He's no longer with us, but he lost both sisters and both parents in the war. And, you know, they married shortly after immigrated to the United States, it took about two decades. So they were, they lived under communism, very hard life there. And when they got to the United States, you know, it was my grandparents, my uncle and my dad. So my dad's older brother was eight years older than him. And what my dad called my uncle in Hungarian, their native language, when they arrived in the United States, uh, translates to English as my king, right? That's how much my dad loved and revered his older brother. And my uncle was diagnosed with leukemia about a few months after arriving in the United States and he passed away within a year. So after all the loss from the Holocaust, right? We're talking about resilience. You know, my grandparents got through that, got to the United States, then to lose their oldest son, right? is such a tragedy. And of course, for my dad as well, just a huge tragedy, being an immigrant in this country, not speaking the language, being made fun of, losing his brother. 
And so my family has been through a lot and, you know, we, we know a thing or two about resilience. One of the things that was remarkable to me as I was reading the story is there's a, an element of not only getting knocked down and, and picking yourself back up in resilience, but also evading. And I found your, your grandmother to be very clever in how she handled herself and adjusted to certain situations. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. So my grandmother says, it didn't matter what you did back then in many instances, because you needed luck and you needed help, right? Because to survive the Holocaust took a little bit of a miracle, but there were things that were in your control and you had to optimize them, right? And so my grandmother, when she was in Budapest and she was on the run, she had to wear a yellow star. She didn't tell anyone where she was hiding, right? Because people were getting captured by the Nazis. They were being, you know, they they could do things to get information from them. So she said that was like rule number one. You never shared your location with anyone. She was just, every decision she made was very purposeful. And like you said, very clever. You know, she, she was starving, so she needed food. So, you know, she would try to, you know, she didn't do anything unethical. She didn't steal, but just any, anything you could do to survive. After, they, after the war, you know, they had been liberated from the Budapest ghetto. It was my grandmother and her brother. They, they were free to go, but they had nothing until they found some thread and they traded that thread for scraps of food, right? That's how dire it was. Just to get some sustenance in your body, right? They had to find thread and trade it for food. So the ingenuity, you know, the, like you said, the cleverness, just to think about, hey, how do I survive? How do I keep going? Yeah, you had to make really, really smart, disciplined decisions, right? If you were undisciplined, and I write in my book about people my grandmother knew at that time who maybe found a little liquor and drank it and then talked about something. And before you knew it, the Nazis were out their door, right? It was th- that small could lead to life or death. And so it was just, it was really extraordinary discipline to, to just get through. As I hear you talking, I think it's really important to remind listeners that this is only 80 years ago. This wasn't that long ago. And I think the reason why I bring it up is we just have to celebrate all that we have, even though there's a lot of anxiety about the future and the past few years have been very difficult for us. It's really important to really understand in the context of less than a century, people were living like that. Absolutely. And I, I spend a lot of time talking about my family's story, trying to educate about the Holocaust. And I always tell groups, particularly groups of young people, although it's relevant to everyone, you know, we read about the Holocaust in history books. We know the numbers, six million Jews and millions more, but it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around that. And I always share with groups, you know, it wasn't that long ago to your point, and it wasn't that far away, right? My grandmother was there, right? Her, the people she loved most in the world were killed in this, you know, in the Holocaust. And so it's, uh, it's not only important for us to be grateful, have appreciation, but also to know what's at stake when people aren't treated fairly. What was her life like after the war? Can you talk about what it was like from arriving to the U.S. until maybe she retired or moved out West? You know, listen, they, they spent two decades under communism after the war. And for as much as my grandmother speaks about the Holocaust, she also talks about the brutality of communism. And it was, I mean, my grandparents had friends who were jailed, tortured, or killed for saying just a word that the government didn't like. And so their life was very hard. And of course, fleeing as refugees, getting to the United States, and then for my uncle to pass tragically as a young man. This is, this is her story. This is what she went through. And 
there was so there was so much hardship there were so many tears there's so much sadness but ultimately she has lived this just amazing life right she everyone that encounters her and even for you reading the book you've never met her personally but you probably feel like you know her and you want to know her better that's what everyone tells me you know and that's why i i tell you she is the star of the book she's the star of our family she's someone that can make us all believe right because if she could go what she if she could go through what she's been through and be the type of person she is there's hope for all of us and so she just has this incredible attitude and this ability to see the goodness in, in life and in people, despite all the darkness, all the hardships, she's really made life beautiful for herself and for all those around her. Did she ever tell you her secret for doing that? Because that can't be easy. That can't be easy to experience all of that tragedy, all of that lack of humanity, and then to be a positive person and, and to be a loving mother and to be a loving grandmother. How, how did she do that? I think it's an art, not a science, right? If it were that easy, we would all have this incredible gift. And we try, we all try, you know, and I've learned so much from her, of course. I think there are a couple parts of that. She has that in her. For what, that's, that's the type of person she is and has always been. And so like she, you know, it's the nature nurture question. So the nature piece of it, she just has that. But from a nurture perspective, she had an amazing father. And I write about my great grandfather in my book. You know, he was killed in Auschwitz, but he was, my grandmother's hero and he was wise and he was loving and he just really imparted this incredible knowledge and wisdom on her and part of that was the importance of family taking advantage of your opportunities and she just had this really wonderful role model who you know she was raised with a great deal of self-worth understanding and as she then you know survived so she was 17 18 years old when she survived the war right so she had her whole life in front of her lost my uncle at 38 roughly when she got to the United States. So she lived, she's lived a long, you know, life with a lot of things happening, but I think she really drew on my grandfather's, my great grandfather's influence in her life. And then she just naturally had these kind of qualities and my, you know, in the Jewish, the Jewish religion, it's tradition to name children after ancestors who have passed. And, you know, my oldest son's name is Solomon and my great-grandfather's name was Solomon. So I've named my firstborn after my great-grandfather because I understand what a presence he was in my grandmother's life. What are two or three lessons that she taught you that you value and have helped you live your life? I think, and you get this from the book, the power of love and of family, relying on your family, being close to your family. And so for my grandmother, just the importance of family in our lives can never be, you know, overstated and also hard work, right? And because that's what helped my grandparents build a life in the United States when they got here. That's what my dad helped my dad kind of be this rose that grew from concrete on the basketball court. And then of course, attitude. And we just talked about it, right? And just being positive, being hopeful, I, when I talk about my book, I always say, and it's true, there's a lot of darkness in my family story, but there's much more light. And that's the truth. And I think life is that way. We go through hard things, but you know, you, it, it's, always, it's always helpful to try to you know, look at the, the hopeful side of it, the positive side, the optimistic side. My favorite book is Man's Search for Meaning. And obviously it's written by Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor. And he writes that essentially we have the the ability to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances. And that's just mind-blowing. And you, when you realize that, 
not only that that's true, but this is a Holocaust survivor who wrote this. And he's saying, you know, your coffee's not warm enough. You get to choose if that's going to derail your day, day, if you get cut off in traffic. Like, understanding you, you control the response, no matter what the situation is. Yeah. And when you learn that lesson, and unfortunately, I didn't learn it until I was well into adulthood, it's power. You are able to get control over a lot of things. And it sounds like that a, was a very important lesson that she taught you. Absolutely. And of course, man, sir, for me, it's such an incredible book. And what you just shared was my biggest takeaway from the book, right? And I know that quote when he says like, it's the ultimate freedom that you have. And for him being prisoner in Auschwitz, where they take everything, but they can never take his ability to choose how he reacts to things. Right. And that was, so I'm glad you, you called that out because it's, it's true. Just thinking about someone in that situation to have that reflection, share that insight. It is so immensely powerful. And I'd say, yeah, my grandmother's similar that way. And the way you treat other people. It's not only dictating your responses to situations, but how you can treat somebody else. And, you know, he talks about saying a kind word to another prisoner or, you know, spreading compassion. And and you wouldn't think that those things are, are present in that in that dire, dire situation, but, but they were, and, and that's an important lesson. I had mentioned my grandmother, you're being so disciplined and she's smart. She's savvy, this incredible will to live. She always says you needed luck, you needed help. And she had a great deal of luck. And you know, cause you read my book, she also had help. And when you talk about people acts of kindness and yeah, that has been such a lesson that I've also learned from my grandmother, how you treat people, how you show up for people acting with integrity, acting with compassion. She had a soldier who gave her an extra piece of bread when she was starving. She had a fellow prisoner give her a pair of pants when she was freezing. Someone even gave her a kiss on the cheek, which just provided some hope. And as you know, Raul Wallenberg, the legendary Swedish diplomat, is one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. You know, he saved my grandmother's life twice. And, and he's, he's a big symbol in my family. And for my grandma, again, who's going to turn 98 soon, she still sheds tears over him because he was apprehended by the Russians after the war and never seen again. So he risked his life and lost his life help other people. That's the lesson, right? That, that's what we, so in, in my, my family's experience with the Holocaust, it's really, it's so disheartening and upsetting and disturbing to see what human beings are capable of doing to each other. But then you think about Wallenberg and, and these other acts of kindness, and it's, it's very uplifting to know what human beings are capable of doing for each other. Right. And so that's the important distinction. Your, your father is an important figure in this story as well. And for those people who don't know, he's a former NBA basketball player, storied career at the University of Tennessee, and an executive as well in the NBA National Basketball in the National Basketball Association. And I wanted to ask about, well, we'll get into his career highlights in a moment, but I wanted to ask you about the lessons that he learned from his parents, because you described your grandparents as incredibly hardworking and you know what did he pick up on that and and was that one of the keys to his success as a player and then later as an executive a hundred percent and just the the courage to keep going you know to to not quit to not give up to believe right that that takes something that takes some inner fortitude and my grandparents both had that they built a nice life in america that's what my dad observed 
they came to this country with no formal education because of the war. And my grandmother loved going to school, was a great student, but she couldn't get an education because of the Holocaust. Then they come to America. They don't speak the language, so no English, and they lose their son. My grand, my, my uncle's in the hospital getting treatments, blood transfusions, then he passes, right? So this is how they come to this. So despite all that, they still built this life. That, that was, that was the hard work. And so my dad, you know, once he found basketball and that kind of clicked for him, he had an example of what it took and he kind of rode that to incredible success. I think it's important to acknowledge that he, he was growing up in the 60s and 70s and basketball was popular. It was a sport, but not this privileged AAU sport and all of these camps that it is today. And so I, I would love for you to describe what life was like for him as somebody who didn't speak the language and somebody who didn't have a network of friends and and the, just the challenges that he faced on a day-to-day basis as a boy and then as a, a young man. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, you know, coming to the United States, not speaking English. So when he, they landed in, in America, 1964, JFK Airport, my dad spoke fluent Hungarian, Romanian, and Italian, three languages fluently, but didn't speak a word of English. And and then, of course, losing his brother, right, was just that his brother was his hero, right? He was his protector. And so that was such a tragedy. You know, kids were making fun of him because he didn't speak the language. My grandparents were working so much. So he was a latchkey kid. You know, he'd have to lock up the apartment when he left in the morning, let himself in. So this is his reality. And as I write in the book, he was an at-risk immigrant youth. And in New York City, yeah, you could go in a lot of different directions. He was lucky that he found something so positive that he really excelled at. And that was basketball, of course. And he found that at, at, on, at the playground, you know, in Queens, New York, he just went to the park to play. And all of a sudden there's this game and it started happening for him. And so, you know, he, he wanted to assimilate. He wanted to make friends. He wanted to learn the language. He wanted to heal from his brother's, his brother's death. Right. And so basketball became kind of salvation for him and it took him farther than he ever could have imagined. So tell us, what are some of his highlights from his career? He became one of the best players in the country in high school. And it happened so quickly. He didn't even, he didn't know where he was moving toward, but he just kept moving. And so became one of the most highly recruited players in in the United States in high school, went to the University of Tennessee, was a four-time All-SEC player, teamed with Bernard King, who's this legendary NBA basketball player, another New Yorker. They were called the Ernie and Bernie Show, one of the greatest duos in college basketball history. A dozen years after my dad arrived in the United States as that little boy who didn't speak the language, he had a chance to try out for the United States Olympic team and he made the team. So my grandparents were in attendance in Montreal as he became an Olympic gold medalist for the United States of America, right? Wearing the stars and stripes on the top of the Olympic podium. And you mentioned my book is called By the Grace of the Game, right? And it's probably, it's clear why we titled it that. Just basketball was just this shining light for him and, and for our family. And so he was the 11th pick in the NBA draft, had a nine-year career. He was a phenom as a high school basketball player and a phenom as a college basketball player. He was a good NBA basketball player, but he, was, he wasn't a great player. He was more of a role player, had a gr- very successful nine-year career. The last four years of his career were spent with the New York Knicks, you know, where he wore number 18, by the way, which is the most symbolic number in Judaism. My dad wore that number. He stayed with the Knicks after, upon retirement broadcasted games, quickly became the general manager of the team. So he built several NBA finals teams and then was the general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks and then the Washington Wizards. So he spent roughly 30 years as a lead executive of NBA teams, one of the longest tenured executive in, executives in NBA history. So 
this incredible storied career, you've heard the origin story, right? He fled communism under duress. His parents are Holocaust survivors. And so I'd say more importantly than any of this, he's a great father, right? So I'm so proud of him for all he's accomplished in, you know, on the court, off the court, but he's a family man and he's, you know, just someone I'm very proud of. Being an executive for a New York sports team is not very easy. So the resilience that he built up came in very useful or came in handy as, a, as an executive for the Knicks. It's brutal when you, uh, being, a, being a sports executive in general is very demanding and there are a lot of perks related to it, but there, you know, it's, it's a hard job. There's a lot of criticism. It's very, very public, particularly in New York. You know, so I would wake up in the morning as, you know, seventh grade and go downstairs, pick up the New York Post. And my dad's on the cover of the New York Post wearing a crown because he's the king of New York because the Knicks, but then a month later, the Knicks have lost six straight and now he's wearing a clown nose, right? Like, this is kind of how it goes. And you have to develop a thick skin. And it was like my dad used to take the subway from Queens to the old Madison Square Garden. And my grandfather would take the subway from the Bronx. This is right when they got to the United States, right after my uncle had passed. And they would buy the cheapest tickets because that's what they could afford. And they'd sit in the bleachers and the nosebleeds and they'd watch the Knicks play. That's my dad's childhood. And then he not only became a New York City basketball legend, but then he played for the Knicks and now he's running the whole team, right? So I used to, I watched Knicks games growing up from a private skybox because that's where my dad would watch the games, right? So you have to have a sense of perspective, right? People are cheering you. People are booing you. There's, there was more going on there for, for my dad, for our family. You know, he always just put his head down worked as hard as he could, didn't, didn't talk, didn't, you know, just, just did his work just like his parents did. And it served him really well. So let's transition to you and your part of the story. I, I think the word you used in the book is privileged. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I am privileged in so many ways. Just being born in the United States of America, you know, as a white male, like, and I had, you know, because my dad was an NBA basketball, I had resources. My dad had none of that. <laughs> you know, like he came with I me. Mean, didn't speak the language. His brother died. They didn't have the resources. And then look what he did, right? So I always, wow, like if, and my grandparents forget it, like they survived the Holocaust and came to the United States. So I always would just look at that and say, man, they did all that. And, and so I could have the life that I do. And my sister could have the life that we do. I better, I better make something of it, of these opportunities, right? And so I just took it upon myself, the same values, right? I wanted to outwork and still do, by the way, I want to outwork everybody. And, you know, I want to grind harder, you know, I want to, if things happen good, I want to be measured about it. If things happen bad, I want to, you know, overcome it. That's what I learned from my family. And so, yeah, and my, my struggles looked a lot different, of course, because my, my grandparents, that was life and death, right? My dad, he had other challenges for me. You know, I had this horrible knee injury and I had, their, but you know, these are, but they're not, they're not life and death, like my family's, but they're mine. And actually it was my grandmother who always made so much space for me to mourn your disappointments, to, you know, feel it, but ultimately to know you got to pick yourself up and keep going. You mentioned earlier in our discussion, this sense of belonging that basketball gave your father and you kind of alluded to your belonging in your family's legacy. And I think that's a really important thing is you chose this honoring of the family's legacy over the entitlements that you might get. And I think that's, that's really interesting. And I, I just wonder what you have to say to that. Yeah, it was always what kind of drove me, what I cared about. And 
it's an underdog story in many ways, right? For my dad to come as this immigrant boy, to win a gold medal, to become this big star, for my grandparents just to survive in the first place and to come to America, it's an American dream story. Despite my great privilege in so many ways, for what I wanted to do, I was an underdog. Because I, I, as you know from the book, I wanted to play basketball at Stanford from the time I was in seventh grade. And I write, that was a long shot for a slow Jewish kid from the suburbs. And that's what I was. Who was not 6'6 at the time. Not at the time. I would grow, I would grow to it, right? Which helped. But uh, no, I was, yeah, I, I made a really big goal. And, and the reason I wanted to play at Stanford is because my grandmother lived and still lived 25 minutes from campus. And they were one of the top teams in the country, one of the best schools in the world. So, and that was actually a really important part of, point in my life. And I was so young, I didn't even know what it meant. But I, I, I lived that. I wanted that, right? And, I, and so that took an extraordinary amount of work on the basketball court in the classroom. Right? I had to be a standout really in both those areas. And, and I knew what it took. And, I, and that's some of my privilege too, right? Because I, I had an example. I knew from my dad what it took. But to, again, to my credit, like I, I'm not afraid of work. And so I just rolled my sleeves up in the classroom and on the basketball court, and I, I got my scholarship to Stanford, and I had my nice career there, and I had my nice professional career. I, I, a lot of that was just outworking people, and I, and I liked it that way, and I still like it that way. So outworking people included a really, really intense summer workout program, and there's a character in the book, I don't know if it's his real name, but Crazy Frank and his workouts. So can you talk about you opted into this. This wasn't something that your coach said you need to do. This is something that you wanted to do. So who's Crazy Frank and what sort of workout regimen did he put you under? Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't say Crazy Frank on his birth certificate, although maybe it should. Uh, his name is Frank, but uh, people call him Crazy Frank. Dear friend, he actually became quite a prominent trainer in the years that followed our work together. But he trained people for the military, very hardcore you know, this is something that you wouldn't do casually. It relates to the, what we were just talking about. So my sophomore year at Stanford, we were the number one team in the country. We started the season 26 and 0. So we won our first 26 game. We were literally the, the top ranked team in the country. I had a very tough year individually. I had no confidence. I couldn't make a shot. So I played and I, you know, I was one of the first guys off the bench, but I just, it, it wasn't happening for me. And I had, all I wanted to do was play in the NBA. Like my dad, I had worked, I, you know, I just, it's, I was obsessed with it. I missed, we were the number one seed in the NCAA tournament. I missed a shot at the buzzer that would have tied the game in the second round when we got upset. They're making fun of me on ESPN, right? This is kind of what I was going through at the time. And I just remember thinking, you know, I need to do something different. And I think that that lesson is applicable to all we do, business, life, relationships. Like sometimes you need to do something different. And in this context, different than my competition. And for me at the time, my competition was the teams we're playing against and my teammates. You're competing with everyone because if you want to be the best, you want to be the best. And that's where I was at. Frank, you know, so we were working hard at Stanford. We had trainers. You know, we were spending three, four hours a day working out, but I knew Frank was a little different. So I, I, I worked out with him one day in the spring because he had, and we we're close personal friends. We would come to my games and he would always tell me, you have to work out with me. You have to work out with me. And I went for one day, he had me sprinting up sand hills and carrying buckets of sand and doing these crazy exercises. And I write in the book, after about 13 minutes, I, I thought I was going to pass out and faint. And, and he said, that's enough, sir. And he tells everyone, sir, that's enough, sir. But I just saw, oh my gosh, if I could withstand this, 
then, you know, my, my competition just isn't doing this. And one thing that I had was heart, you know, and, and he knew that he said, and he always says now he goes, I, he calls me Danny, you know, he goes, I couldn't get Danny to quit, you know, cause, and not that he wanted to right? cause he was responsible, but he would push me, he would test me. And I write it in the book. He would have me do an hour, like grueling workout on the sand. And I'd have to end it with this long run. And as soon as I crossed the finish line, he'd say 10 more minutes, sir. You know, I thought I was done and, and I would be ready to snap, but, but I would do it. And then when I was done, he would say, never forget that because you thought you were done, but you weren't done. Never forget that. Right. And it's just, he, he, he is crazy, Frank, and he is a nut. And if you read my book, you see that because he is that way, but he's also a genius in, in certain ways because he just expands what you think is possible. And he always told me, you know, your mind will always give out for your body. And then I, and I took that, took that to heart. So that that's where I wanted to go next is your mind does give up before your body will. And how did you train your mind? It sounded like, he, it sounds like he was training your mind, right? By giving, by you thinking it's the finish line and then having 10 more minutes. So, you, you know, you're kind of, he was training your mind and your body at the same time. But how do you overcome this? Because your body or your, there's the voice in your head that's saying, stop, this hurts. You know, this isn't worth it. All, all of those things. It, it happens to all of us, right? But some people quit and some don't. Why didn't you? Yeah. So I think for Frank would always, I think a big part of it is the acknowledgement of that voice and that it's not your friend. And he would say that. He, he's like, sir, and to your point, we all have it. It will always tell you no or you can't, but you're in charge. The voice is not in charge. You're in charge. And, and why did I, you just have to believe, right? You just, and part of it was him pushing me. Part of it was me wanting it, whatever that combination was. I bought in, I bought into the fact that I'm a human being and I will, and I have that voice and that voice will tell me, oof, this is painful. Stop, right? We all have it. But then there's Frank in my ear. There's my motivation saying, no mute that voice, like ignore that you're in control. Right. And Frank would always talk about the puppet versus the puppet master. You know, he said, don't be a puppet, be the puppet master. You're in control. You don't stop just because that voice tells you to stop. Right. And, and so that, that was kind of, that was my mentality. And again, where did it come from? Like I said, I think it's a combination of things. I think he really helped me with that. I think I had a little bit of that grit, you know, being hard nosed and part of that comes from my family. You know, knowing again, what they went through, what they overcame, shoot, I'm not quitting. I'm not quitting on a sand hill, right? So that was just how it happened, but it, it served me so well then. And, and by the way, I mentioned that really hard year I had as a sophomore and then doing all this work with Frank, my junior year at Stanford, I was the most improved player in the whole country. I went from averaging 3.4 points per game to 18 points per game. No one in the conference would have even taken me my sophomore year, my junior year. I was one of the best in the country at my position. I was an All-American based off of my performance that year. And some of that was I had more opportunity because our starters left. But a big part of that was just the work I put in with Frank. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for listeners to understand, like, you don't necessarily have to improve incrementally. You can improve by leaps and bounds if, if you're willing to put in that work. And it sounds like you did. Absolutely. And not my my skills, you know, I worked on my skills, my body, my mind, all of that had, had improved significantly. And, and for my sport, which is basketball, it's a package. So once they were all put together on the basketball court, I don't get tired. 
my mind doesn't ever wear down. My body is strong. And, you know, like, yeah, I think that progress can be meteoric. You know, it rises can be meteoric if, if you want them to be. What did your coaches and your teammates say when you came back? They must have been blown away. What did you do this summer? <laughs> right? Like, they're, like it, was, it was pretty clear. It was pretty clear that I came ready and prepared and motivated, you know, because I was, listen, basketball is a very competitive sport. It's cutthroat and I, and you can't be shy about it. Right. And I wasn't at that, at that point. And so, yeah, and I write in the book about the mile run, which is this race at the beginning of the year, which kind of shows like, it was just a competition. You're on a hot track, whistle blows, you're racing. And these are all elite athletes, you know, or student athletes at Stanford. And I won that mile race with a 5.05 time, which, you know, 6.6220, that's a pretty nice mile time pace. And yeah, people were like, oh man, because I didn't do that in my first two years. You know, I didn't win that race. And then they said, wow, you're, Danny, I think Danny's ready to roll here, you know? And then once, once practice started, yeah, it was kind of clear that I had put the work in. What was interesting is that my coach, he didn't anoint me as the starter at my position. He was still pushing me, still... And even before the last game, they had four positions decided, but not the shooting guard position, which was my position. And I was just so hungry, you know, like foaming out the mouth. And, and I remember actually getting a, a videotape of one of our early practices from our video staff to send to my dad. Cause I was telling him, I was like, dad, you won't believe this. You won't believe this. Right. And I did send it to him and I got the starting position. I had 23 points, 11 rebounds. Our first game, right. The, it was just onward and upward from there. But yeah. And you know, what's so cool about that moment. I remember thinking, man, this is awesome because it's one of those rare moments in life where like, it just makes sense. Like you put in the work, you sacrifice and you're getting the reward. That's how it should be. Right. And like, I just remember thinking, man, like it's working out right now. The world is good. And listen, I had tore my ACL at the very worst time. And so you're up, then you're down. But it was, it was pretty incredible to see the output of all that work. Let's talk about your knee injury. In the days and weeks that followed, what were you telling yourself? Listen, that it was on national television against our biggest rival, Tiger Woods sitting courtside. I had 16 points at the beginning of the second half, so I was on my way to 30. It was just, it was all happening. And in the blink of an eye, one step, I felt it. I knew right away, crumbled to the floor. It was right under our second half basket. And that's where my grandmother sat for all of our games. She didn't miss one home game I played at Stanford. And she was so sitting 20 feet away. And I panicked at birth, rolling around in agony. And when I came to my senses, I realized that my grandmother was kneeling down next to me, rubbing my head, right? And so that tells you so much, not only how we've been through so much together, how she's always been there for me, but she's such a symbol in my life, right? So Yes, this, this was a huge disappointment. And if she were on the call today, she'd say, I don't want to talk about this. She hates talking about my knee injury because she knows how painful that was, not only the physical part, more so the emotional part. But I had her as my guide and also my dad, like just as examples of what they overcame, what they went through. So I cried, I mourned it. I was disappointed. I was upset, but then I was motivated and it happened. You know, it took a little bit of time, but Pretty quickly, I started thinking, okay, what's next? How do I, how do I get over this? How do I get back? How do I recover? Because it's, you know, you fall down, you get up. And I know that, of course, from my family, but that was kind of my mentality. So just started to get to work. Ruthless discipline around my rehab, my surgery. Every, I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to optimize every step of this to, be, to get back as quick as I can, to be as good as I can. And 
that's a brutal injury. So as much as I wanted to get back quickly, it didn't exactly happen that way. I struggled my senior year. I wasn't quite ready, but in my heart, I wanted to be, I put in the work and eventually I had a, a very successful professional career. And you didn't have to sit out a year. You, you came back the following fall. Came back the following fall. Yes, I came back. So after eight months I was playing, listen, in retrospect, I probably would have sat out just because I wasn't ready. And actually one of my assistant coaches at Stanford suggested that I did. And I almost ripped his head off. <laughs> he would, hmm. or, you know, he would say that to this day because I was so hungry and so motivated and I just wanted to come back. So it's a brutal injury. There's only so much you could do, you know, and I wasn't quite ready yet. And it really affected my performance and my draft stat and all these things. Right. So if you could look back, say, oh, probably would have been better. Uh, to sit out a bit, but I came back after eight months. And, and you played professionally in Europe. You played in Germany. I know you played in Israel. How did you make your, your own name for yourself? And what advice would you have for, for those who may have a famous parent and who, who have to go ahead and, and make their own name? Yeah. On the famous parent side, there are of course, a lot of perks associated with that. There are challenges. And, and I was very honest in my book about no that. doubt about it. Yeah. Feeling like people looked through me, made assumptions about me. I didn't like that. That that angered me. Right. I wanted I wanted people to see me for me. So I'll tell you how I kind of went about it. And I actually think it's also advice for others who are you know trying to achieve what they want to achieve, overcome certain things. It is actually a piece of advice from my dad, but he he would always tell me you can only control your own actions, right? Think about whatever's in your control. That's what you should really focus on. And for me that, and we've talked about it, that's work. That's, you can, you can control that. You can own that. What do you put into it? Right? So when I, and I do, I talk to a lot of young, young people about this book and about the story, how it can relate to them, focus on the work, commit to that because that's never going to steer you wrong. And for me, I'm, I wanted to get the NBA, which didn't happen. I want to get to Stanford, with, which did happen. Some things are going to happen. Some things aren't. But if you put the work in, it'll always be for positive because you're, you're going to get things out of that, right? Not only that, that you'll achieve or not achieve, but you'll know that you can do it. You'll know that you have what it takes to put the work in. So that, that's what I always tell people. And that's what I did. Just focus on the work. The other part is be really, really disciplined and intentional about your attitude, the positivity, the hope, because there are disappointments. And of course, my family's history, we see what they dealt with, right? Like there's a lot of dark times for in everyone's life because all our dark times look different. Just to, just to tell yourself, like, it's going to get better. Stay positive. There's always, you know, there's always something better around the corner. Just having that really, really positive attitude and then really concentrating on work. Anything's possible with that. Dan, where can people learn more about you? In my book, you know, if, if <laughs> really that, that's my soul on a page. So, you know, by the grace of the game, you know, I'm just always honored when people, you know, engage with the story, not only for the, this, the resilience piece of it, but learn about the Holocaust to learn about really, you know, meaningful story. You know, and I have a website, dangrefel.com. I'm on Twitter and, and all the other places, but I'm just always grateful for the opportunity to kind of share some of these lessons and some of this story. I really appreciate you sharing the story. Thanks for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week when I interview author and executive leadership coach Hortense Lagenti. 
We will discuss her new book, The Unlocked Leader, and what it takes to lead with both our heads and our hearts. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.